Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. MassMedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at AirlinesConfidential.com. If there were an opinion poll among the flying public for which former airline CEO should win the Iowa caucuses, I don't think this guy would win. It's Ben Baldanza, former CEO of Spirit (laughs) Airlines, who now teaches about how airlines work. Well, and if you're uh, watching TV business news, you can actually put the face to the name of Seth Kaplan here and now transportation analyst because they call him all the time for airline news as they should. Oh, thanks, Ben. And hey, the public should like you because you saved them money, right? You <laughs> well, that's what we tried to do. Except pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. We're, we're going to talk about whether airlines and passengers should care that Boeing's new CEO officially began work this week and whether airlines and passengers should worry about what's going on in and around Iran. We'll discuss how to know if the airline you're booking will go out of business before your flight. And we'll read a real passenger complaint and decide whether the customer is correct or the airline is right as heck. That's in our finer wine segment. First, though, let's prepare for takeoff with this week's news. Dave Calhoun officially and unsurprisingly became Boeing's CEO less than a month after Boeing's board fired previous CEO Dennis Mullenberg. Calhoun had previously been chairman of that board. All this comes as the world marks 10 months now since the grounding of the 737 MAX with no imminent end in sight. Remember back when it was first grounded, we were all talking about, you know, would it be weeks or months? I mean, here here we are looking at perhaps a year of the grounding and beyond. Meanwhile, the first half of the month of the new decade has featured far higher tensions in what Iran calls the Persian Gulf, what almost everyone else in the region calls the Arabian Gulf, following the killing by America of Iran's Qasem Soleimani. Of course, what happens in that region is more than just geopolitical news. It's also economic news, and it's important for the airline industry for three reasons. First, it impacts oil prices. That, in turn, affects airlines absolutely everywhere, even airlines that don't fly anywhere near the region. And by extension, a rise in oil prices affects airfares everywhere even for passengers not traveling anywhere near there. Uh, Second, of course, many airlines around the world do fly to the region or fly over it. So uh, this does affect airline networks. And of course, if Iran were to target air travel as retaliation for what happened, that could change everything in terms of travel demand. And third, three of the world's most influential airlines are based in the region. I'm talking about Emirates, Qatar Airways, and Etihad. Uh, You know, in some ways, they all have maybe more modest ambitions as this decade starts than back when last decade was starting. But on the other hand, they're already a lot bigger now. Emirates is a $25 billion a year revenue company. It's bigger than basically every airline company in the world, except the big three global ones, each in the US and Europe. Now, Ben, first, I want to ask you, between those two big stories, Boeing's new CEO and everything surrounding the Macs related to that, And number two, the most tense situation we've seen in years in the Gulf region, which is going to be the bigger story for the remainder of 2020 for most airlines and passengers around the world? Well, Seth, they're both big stories. I think for passengers, it's clearly the situation in the Mideast, because that's going to affect, as you said, prices. 
could affect flight planning itself. I mean, if you're flying from the U.S. to India, for example, you would fly over that region. And it's possible that airlines may change their flight paths or be told by their governments to stay out of certain airspace that to... Prior to this, they may have flown over if people are nervous about what could happen. I think the Boeing news is big news for airlines because it certainly affects all the airlines that buy planes from Boeing or are thinking of buying airplanes from Boeing. The thing that's crazy about that, Seth, I think, it's not surprising that Boeing has a new CEO and a new head of airline you know, sales in the commercial division because earlier Kevin McAllister was let go also, who was in yeah, that role. Like late October, but yeah. That's right, but it's kind of this drip, drip, drip of changes happening. I mean, the planes crashed early in 2018. They were grounded in they were grounded late, late in March. 20, so I guess late 2018 and early 2019, right? Was, I think, yeah, uh, oh yeah, November yeah, 2019, that's right. Of, uh, 18 and then, yeah, March of, of 19, yeah. That's right, it's 2020 now, I got to remember yeah. that. And then, you know, small changes, you know, first it's going to be back soon, then we're going to get rid of this person, then months later we're going to get rid of that person. And it's almost as if the problem is getting deeper rather than getting solved. I would have thought relatively early on, once the plane was grounded, there would have been sort of this whole house effort to sort of clear out whoever we need to clear out, solve the mechanical problem of the plane, work with policy wonks and work with um, safety administrators to figure out the right way to recertify the plane so that everybody's comfortable and it's safe, figure out what the right pilot training is and move on. And maybe that would take months or maybe even a year and we're getting on a year now. But the fact that you know, just now they're getting to now changing the CEO suggests to me that as they're into this, they're finding more and more things that might have gone wrong in the process that ultimately resulted in these terrible crashes. And to me, that's concerning, certainly as a customer, but I had, do have confidence that regulators are all over this. And that that plane, the 737 MAX, I mean, uh, is not going to fly again until it truly is safe, until the pilots in the cockpit are trained to understand all the nuances of that airplane. But it does, as an airline, would change your view. I mean, for example, if you're Southwest Airlines and you fly nothing but the 737, are you thinking more now about maybe... Should you have a different airplane in your fleet, not to replace all your 737s, but just give you a hedge? You know, maybe maybe they should go buy Frontier Airlines, and I'm just making that up, right? But Frontier has this lot of A320s and a big order, and they both fly in Denver. So maybe it's just an asset play for them, and they say, I'm going to get all these Airbus airplanes and and hedge my bet against Boeing because and, I just don't know what's such, going on there. <laughs> and just the fact that people are, are that, that, that we would even talk about that. We mentioned in an earlier episode that there was there was an analyst I seen quoted who, said, who was talking about you know scenarios for Southwest mergers, acquisitions, uh, talking about it as a positive if Southwest were to do something with one of the primarily Airbus airlines. So in the U.S., that would be uh, JetBlue, Frontier, yes, yeah, Spirit, of course. And just the fact that, you know, for all those years, it was seen as a strength that Southwest flew only one kind of airplane. And I mean, it still is you know, operationally and, 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 and financially when things go well. But just the fact that, that that somebody would now see that as not a not something to merely tolerate, you know, in an acquisition, having a different fleet type, but something that could be a useful hedge. 
is wild. And and hey, look, even if Southwest never flies anything other than a, a Boeing 737, this has changed the dynamic between Southwest and Boeing. Because in the past, Boeing could kind of take Southwest business for granted. I mean, Southwest is a, is a very, very important customer. Obviously, Boeing cares a lot about what Southwest thinks. And Southwest has, I'm sure, gotten good pricing because of the volumes of planes that it buys. But it didn't have the leverage to really pretend that it was going to buy something else. You know, no matter what it said, everybody kind of knew that in the end it was going to buy 737s. Whereas I think uh, everybody believes Southwest now when it says that it's at least willing to consider other airplanes. Another thing you said, the regulators, I mean, look, the FAA and Boeing were, of course, accused of being too cozy during the certification process and even perhaps the decisions about the grounding. And clearly now the FAA, now under new leadership, it, it doesn't appear to be too cozy with Boeing. I, I mean, you know, part of the undoing of, of former CEO Mullenberg was that you could tell that the FAA was was losing its patience. So I think what you said uh, makes makes a lot of sense about the fact that the FAA is operating at least a lot more independently. Uh, you know, there's there's going to be ongoing debate about you know how much of this self certification should still go on in, in, in industry. But anyway, uh, showing a lot more scrutiny than it previously did. Uh, in terms of Iran, you know, Gary Leff, who writes the uh, View from the Wing blog, a, a, a widely read blog mentioned a few weeks ago in, in, a, in a post, and I thought this was important to remember, that there was a flight, Iran Air 655, back in 1988, which the U.S. shot down accidentally. It was a, it was a commercial plane, and the, the, you know 200-something people died, and Airbus 300 flying to Dubai. Uh, and, and, and Gary made the point that in that in Iran's sort of collective consciousness, that was a very that that remains a very big event. Uh, you know, it's something that I that and it hit me. I said, yeah, you know, as Americans, we don't really think about that, do we? But that was Iran's, you know, Pan Am Flight 103, which was right. shot down by Libya over Lockerbie, Scotland, or, may, or maybe even their their 9/11, right? Just because of the proportionality, it was a smaller country, and, and so. Uh, so, so commercial aviation, uh, you know, has a lot to do with the dynamic between the U.S. and Iran, and certainly you hope that it remains only history uh, with all the threats that that, uh, that Iran is making. But even threats to do who knows what in the world could could impact travel demand. We've seen it in the past, uh, uh, you know, people who, who who avoid traveling not only in the region but who knows perhaps beyond. Well, let me ask you a question, Seth. Um, one of the things that has been said in the news, and this isn't a politics show, but politics affects airlines in lots of ways, right? Um, yeah. Is that one of the realities of the current situation there is that there are players in the Middle East who support the idea that the U.S. supports of putting some uh, constraints around Iran as a country. And one of those areas are the Emirates, is the UAE. And the UAE is seen as an ally of the U.S. in its policies toward Iran. Now, I've certainly not seen the UAE say anything about this recent uh, killing. But the question is, um, if you think that Iran's going to want to retaliate, the Airlines that you mentioned, the Etihads, the Emirates, the Cutters, are much closer. And so to do something at an airport or something there would be much easier probably than for than for them to do something, you know, over here in America. No the question. question is, would you as a customer 
you know, choose to avoid connecting in the Middle East for the next couple months? And would you choose to go over Heathrow or Frankfurt or something? Right. Just so if because I were you're nervous to, about to India, so let's say I was flying from the U.S. to India, and I could choose to connect in one of those Gulf hubs or 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 a European hub. Uh, or I mean, in a couple of cases, there are nonstops from the U.S. to India. Yeah, uh, I don't think I will. I, I think I would view this as always, where you know, just just as very low probabilities of of things going wrong. But I'm saying that theoretically, right? I'm not sitting here booking a ticket, am I? And all things being equal, right? I probably wouldn't pay you know a whole lot more to avoid it or, or fly an airline that I you know, hate to fly for some other reason, but if, I, if, but if the fare were equal, it's a good question. I, and, I, and I wonder what I would do if I were actually faced with it. What would you do, Ben? Would you, would you avoid those hubs? All else being equal. I mean, similar fare, similar schedules and all that. Would you rather connect right now in Europe than in, than in the Gulf? I think like you on this, I think the probabilities of anything happening are just so low and the, the situations are so complex that yeah. the I probably would still go ahead and connect right. through the Middle East if I were buying that ticket. But I have to say, I would think about it, and it it's not something I would have thought about connecting in the sure. Middle East beforehand. And I don't know that I'll be thinking about it a few months from now. But right now, with this uncertainty, it sort of adds an uncertainty to that. And I, I wonder if it's affecting bookings of those carriers. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there is somebody, right? Whether it's whether it's measurable, you know, statistically significant, I don't know. But I'm sure there's somebody out there, uh, you know, there's some, uh, you know, whether measurable or not, impact on on bookings. And you mentioned uh, just, just sort of all the, all the, the, the other, you know, as, as you sort of carry the logic forward, all kinds of things could change. You mentioned the UAE's concerns, which aren't, Look, they're seen as 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 sort of aligned with Saudi Arabia, but it, it, they don't view everything the same, right? And here you've got the sort of the fracture in the relations between Qatar and the other Arab countries there a few years ago, and that's something that people are saying. Let's see if that thaws. You know, Qatar kind of a little more aligned with Iran than the than, than the UAE and Saudi, but let's see if. If you know a, a more belligerent Iran, you know whether or not you believe it was it was provoked to be more belligerent than the U.S., but clearly uh, an Iran seen as more of a threat now. Whether that pushes Qatar and the other countries in the Gulf region closer together, and that too would have impact on the airline industry because Qatar Airways hasn't been able to fly to to a lot of what used to be its most important uh, destinations, and in turn those you know. The, those airlines haven't been serving Doha. So all kinds of other possibilities here. I, I, I want well, to and Seth, on. as yeah. you know, as you know, um, it also has affected Qatar's ability to fly over Saudi Arabia. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For yeah, some yeah time, exactly. Which made their flights from, you know, connecting through Doha made the flights longer into the U.S. than if yeah. you went through Dubai um, or, or Abu Dhabi. And that's so once again, it's not like this current issue of this of this um of this killing is creating this new dynamic of politics affecting airlines in this region politics has been affecting airline operations for a long time for many decades in, indeed uh, some of these countries started as sort of colonial 
political projects because of, <laughs> of right. uh, having to do with oil and, 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 and all the rest of it there. I, I you know, I, w- I want to get to a question. And, and by the way, we've been getting so many good questions. In our early shows, we were practically begging for, for, uh, for, for people to, to call in or write in. And now they've just been uh, coming in at such a pace that I want to get to two of them today if we can. And, and everybody, we, we have your questions. And so, so please um, be patient. We will get to them all. So if you, even if you don't hear it in the next show after you call or write in, don't think that we're not going to get to it. We will. Like I said, we're going to start getting through uh, a couple of them per show to reduce the backlog. First question today is from Andrew in Brookline, Massachusetts. Andrew writes, love the podcast, except when Seth sings. <laughs> in planning summer vacations, there are a bevy of cheap flights to and in Europe on airlines we are less familiar with. Are there signals we should look at to see if the airline will go the way of Wow Air or Thomas Cook? In particular, if we hear that credit card companies are holding back payments until the flight occurs, should we stay away? How many airlines survive credit card holdbacks? So a few things. First of all, Andrew was clearly being sarcastic when he said the part about how he loves the podcast except when Seth sings. I'm sure he <laughs> mean, he means that he that was his favorite part of all and he'd like to hear more of it, right? I know sarcasm is difficult to to detect in email sometimes, but I uh, but I saw right through that. So thank you Andrew for what's clearly a compliment. Second, Andrew is somebody who clearly knows the industry, or at least you know, credit card holdbacks really aren't an airline-specific thing. So, just to quickly explain that, what this means is, you know, when you buy when you buy anything with, with a credit card, you get certain protections, and, and specifically with the airline industry, you buy an airline ticket, and and people are probably familiar with this now because of the bankruptcies that, air, that Andrew mentioned. You buy with a credit card, your airline goes out of business. Usually, you can go back to the credit card company and say, "Hey, this company didn't give me." Uh, what what it promised, and the credit card company will refund you. Now, that's true of other things that you buy in advance of a service being delivered, but the airline industry just happens to be a very prominent example, right? You go to Walmart, you buy something, you take it home with you right then. Uh, or you know, maybe you order something online, it shows up two days later. But airline tickets are something that people buy up to 11 months in advance. And then the airline just has to deliver that service much later. It's true of like, subscriptions, for example, right? You might pay for a, a year's subscription and then the, you know, the publisher goes out of business or something. Other examples in the world, yes. But using that example, you know, I used to have Airline Weekly. And in that case, because we had good credit, people would pay for a subscription with a credit card and we would get the money right away and and you know, just be trusted to fulfill that subscription and i'm sure the, the new owners skiffed i mean they have a good reputation i'm sure that's still true of them if the credit card company ever worried about whether we were going to do that they might have held the money back until we delivered the product right they might have paid us out over 12 months with airlines too if a credit card company thinks that it's on the hook for perhaps having to refund this money it can hold the money back. Credit card holdbacks, they're called. Ben, I remember one in particular where there was sort of a vicious cycle. One example in the US, Frontier Airlines, which more recently has turned itself into an ultra low cost carrier. But back when it was kind of this mid market, lowish cost carrier uh, in the well, but 2008, 2009, uh, it was on shaky ground. People were wondering, you know, would it last? And its credit card processor then began holding back money. It was so worried about Frontier that it said, look, we're not going to give you at least some of the money. 
uh, for flights until after the flight happens because it was worried about Frontier going bankruptcy and going bankrupt. And then guess what happened? The fact that there was this short haul in cash flow actually pushed Frontier into bankruptcy. Then Frontier had a file because it had this gap, right? It had been getting money, you know, in advance of flying like airlines typically do. And all of a sudden it didn't have any cash flow. And the credit card holdbacks, ironically, you might say, caused the bankruptcy. The concern about the bankruptcy caused the bankruptcy in that case. Uh, and this goes on around the world. You know, reputable air- airlines, I'm sure Delta gets its money, you know, right when uh, right when people buy tickets or Southwest or, you know, Ryanair, British Airways, all, all those airlines um, and, and shakier airlines don't. So so back to Andrew's question, Ben, if you agree with my characterization of all that. Yeah. How how how, how do we do the math here? Right. Kind of like you said, would you buy a ticket on a Gulf airline because of different reasons? You know, the, the safety concerns in that case. Yeah. How do we figure out as a consumer uh, what airlines to to. To, to patronize and, and which ones to avoid based on this kind of news. Well, that was a good summary of what the issue is here, Seth. And Andrew's pretty smart in in tying sort of would credit card holdback be a reason that the airline might go under. There's a lot of reasons the airline might go under. I don't know that I would presume that just knowing that makes me think the airline's more likely to go under. Clearly in the Frontier case, when that company, which was called First Data, by the way, yep. still is, right? They, and they, they sucked a bunch of cash out of Frontier, and that's yeah. what put them into the bankruptcy. You know, from the bank standpoint, the reason they do that, it's not just that bankers are these evil people, but from the bank standpoint, if you buy an airline ticket for six months out, that's essentially, if they give the airline money, that's essentially an uncollateralized uncollateralized loan to the airline because they're essentially loaning the airline that money until the airline provides the service. And like you said, if the airline doesn't provide the service, they've got to give that money back to the customer. And banks generally aren't in the uh, business of providing uncollateralized loans to risky and risky uh, risky prospects. And so, if the bank sees the airline as being too risky then it will put that hold back in place. Now, there are airlines in the world who've been operating with a credit card hold back for a long time, and they understand that in their cash flow, and they deal with it, and that doesn't suggest at all that the airline's going to go under. There are also airlines that don't have a hold back, and that doesn't mean that just because they don't have the hold back means they're going to stay in business. So I like Andrew's thinking of is there sort of this canary in the coal mine we can look at if we if we hear, and I'm not exactly sure how you'd hear whether the airline has the holdback or not, unless there was a specific story about the bank adding a holdback to the airline. I mean, you know, do you know right now, for example, exactly what the holdback situation is of every airline in the world? No. You track a lot of them, Seth, right? <laughs> it's a, that's no not idea. the sort of thing that's, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's the thing. It's not the thing that yeah. is really brought up a lot. But if you knew that, if you knew that that was a big change in their cash, that they weren't held back and now they were, that might be a sort of signal to say, I'm booking my once in a lifetime trip on this, you know, um, airline that not everybody knows about. And I just saw this news that they had this big cash drain. Yeah, maybe you should avoid them because you don't know what that's going to mean. But knowing a priori that they have the holdback and they've been operating that way wouldn't suggest to me that they're more likely to go under than one who doesn't. 
I just think that uh, it's an issue, but it's really more of a timing issue than anything. And, and even in it, the case of Frontier, where the holdback was new and, and pushed them into bankruptcy, Frontier didn't go out of business. You know, whoever, whoever bought tickets the next day uh, was able to fly. Obviously, it, it can be different in the U.S. from other parts of the world because of, of Chapter 11 and companies sort of have more of a chance to restructure themselves. But that was kind of the most well-publicized example that I can remember of, of credit card holdbacks because of how things suddenly changed for them. But even there, you know, in, in the end, the, the flight flight did happen from from your perspective ben just as being somebody who has who has run an airline and helped run other airlines yeah how i mean just very very roughly what would you say the breakdown is of airlines that operate with holdbacks and without and i i realize your sample size is you know limited to the airlines that, that you've worked with but but would you say they are very common or or not well, I, what I would say is very common is that most airlines probably have language with their the, the bank that processes their credit cards. They probably have language under which a holdback would be enforced. Yeah. You know, certain cash covenants, for example, if cash falls below X or liquidity falls below Y, then we have the right to hold back. I bet close to 100% of airlines have that kind of language in their deals. Now, the ones that actually have a holdback, I think it's probably a very small percentage okay. of all the seats flying that actually have the holdback. Let me tell you an interesting story. When I first joined Spirit, for, when I first joined Spirit, we not only had a holdback, we had a holdback for tickets that we hadn't even sold yet. <laughs> because <laughs> because what the bank, the deal that the bank had with Spirit, Spirit was such a risky credit at that point to the banks that they said, we're going to look over 12 months and we're going to estimate what our exposure to tickets you sell could be. If you think about it, more people fly to Florida in February than in July, right? Yeah. So you think when people buy tickets and when they use them, and they said, we're going to look over 12 months and we're going to hold you back for the maximum exposure anytime over 12 months we could be held. So sometimes we were held like 120% given it back. It was that bad, right? And uh, we didn't file bankruptcy. The company had been in, been in that holdback situ situation for a long time. It affected our cash in a big way. Later, when the company got stronger and when we became a public company and really improved the balance sheet of the company, that holdback was removed and Spirit is not held back anymore. But the holdback itself didn't put the company into bankruptcy, didn't stop them from flying. It it made them think about their cash management differently. And any situation that pulls a lot of cash out of any company is a concerning situation if you're doing business with that company, investing in that company or buying their product. And so um, Andrew is right that if you knew that that just happened to an airline, I would agree with him that maybe avoid that airline for that next trip. But I wouldn't necessarily say, I want to buy this ticket on X. I'm going to find out whether they're held back with their credit card before I decide that. I think that's a stretch and would might make a miss out on a really good fare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because as you said, you know, maybe the holdback existed for a long time, and they've just they've they've just been dealing with it. Well, uh, now at cruise altitude here on Airlines Confidential, it's time for another great question. We'll talk about how airlines decide which customers to screw over when the weather is bad. Okay, Ooh. not exactly that, but <laughs> anyway, do that next, and then a complaint during fine or wine. It's more Airlines Confidential next. 
Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Fine or wine is next, but first, time for another question. This one from James in Chicago. Hi, James. Hi, my question is, how do airlines decide what flights to cancel during irregular operations? So let's say thunderstorms are rolling into Chicago a nice summer day at 5 o'clock on a Thursday afternoon. How do they decide which flights stay and which flights go? Thanks, James. Uh, ben, James, clearly another very well-informed listener. He used that, that industry term, irregular operation. Sometimes it's abbreviated as IROPS. Sometimes you even hear used as a verb, right? A customer who was IROPT is, is somebody who had something go wrong and you, you know, got to hopefully help this person. But to, to, to James's question about which flights stay and which flights go, I am thinking in my mind, just based on what I know about two criteria that might cause a flight to stay or go. And I want to let you answer the question and see if and, and see if I'm thinking about this the right way. Okay, great. And thank you, James, for a very good question here. There are two ways that airlines cancel. They do what are called pre-canceling, which is long before the flight would take off, they cancel the flight. And airlines do this when they know a big weather event, for example, is coming in by pre-canceling a group of flights, they can sort of thin out a schedule at a congested airport like O'Hare in Chicago, for example. When they do that, the cancellations don't hurt them with their Department of Transportation consumer metrics, because in a way they were sort of getting ahead of things, not canceling you when you're at the gate waiting to go, because they can talk to customers far in advance. The other is real time when there's a delay at the gate and a mechanical problem that is worse than they realize and they cancel right then. And that's a, that's a bigger customer challenge when that happens. But when airlines think about this, there's a couple of things they need to think about. First of all, it's more expensive for an airline to cancel a flight than to operate a flight. So the idea that airlines will cancel flights that don't have a lot of people or will look to consolidate three flights over a three-hour period. They can all fit on two airplanes. They'll cancel one and put everyone on two. Airlines don't do that because the plane has to be in that next station to fly the flight from that station. And the crews on that flight probably need to be where they're going also. Yeah, that's all That's all just a myth when people yeah, think that, that is a myth. All, right? It's, it, because even if you could somehow in a vacuum, even if there was one flight, you hear about the flight with, you know, just, just a few people on it, but then the next, these days, the chances that the next flight that that plane is supposed to operate are, are just as empty and that you don't need to get those crew members to the next city. It's just, yeah, no, exactly. So we're talking about, yeah, the, like James said, the the real, you know, the thunderstorm, you got to cancel a lot of flights. How, how, how do you make the decision? So the real way they make the decision, and this is done in an area of the airline called the Systems Operational Control Center. Some call it the Operational Control Center, OCC or SOC. You hear those kind of anagrams too. Um, the, um, The decision is made to try to reduce the total disruption. And what does that mean? Disruption can be we don't get passengers where they're going when they plan. So for example, If a flight is under consideration for cancellation, 
but I can still get all the customers to where they're going in a reasonable time frame. Maybe they were supposed to get there at 4 p.m. I'm going to get them all there by 6 or 7 p.m. through other combinations of flights. That might encourage me to go ahead and cancel that flight because I can take care of most of the customers in a reasonable way. The other thing that can cause disruption is if the crews themselves or the plane itself would be out of position as a result of the cancellation. So cancellations can put planes in the wrong place, they can put airline crews in the wrong place, and they can stop passengers from getting where they're going. And what the SOC or OCCs in the airlines do is if they realize that because either of a weather situation or because of a tough mechanical situation or something, some other disruptive situation that has to make them cancel a flight, they will say what flight or set of flights will result in the least amount of total disruption, the fewest customers or the least amount of hassle to customers, as well as making sure that my airline can start the next morning with airplanes and crews in the right place. Sometimes that's going to affect you as a customer and your flight's going to get canceled and you're not going to get out that day. Other times it's going to affect you as a customer where you're going to get there later than you expected. But what the airlines are really trying to do is get through that problem that's creating the cancellation and get on the back side of it without even a bigger problem with, well, I got through this, but now my planes are in the wrong place. And now I'm really messing up a lot more people than just this one flight. So it really comes down to what is the total disruption cost. And that can be how many other flights do you have that day? How many seats do you have available for these customers? What other options do I have to get the people where I want to go? How flush am I with my crews and how flexible I am with my fleet that if the plane doesn't show up, I can still meet the rest of the schedule. That's what it comes down to. It's a big optimization issue. SOCs or OCCs in the industry are very good at solving these problems. I worked with an operator once who used to joke Uh, and say that IROPs are really ROPs, meaning regular operations, that IROPs are so common in the industry (laughs) that airlines have to think about them all the time because it's it's a regular part of the industry. Don't go wrong. Yeah. And and so the two things that I was thinking of, which which I I think kind of dovetail maybe with some of that, but tell me if I'm right about this. Two things that would, uh, all, all things being equal, make a flight more likely to be canceled. If an airline has to, as you say, thin out a schedule, they're, they're, you know, the weather's bad. It, there, there just can't be as many departures because there's more separation, you know, takeoffs and landings between flights and all that. A, a larger equipment type over a smaller one, right? If I've got a mainline jet with 150 people or a regional jet with 50 people, all things being equal, I would think the airline's more likely to cancel the regional flight because I'm just affecting fewer people. And a market where there are many frequencies per day where I can probably get people to some place as opposed to a market that is flown less frequently. So in other words, you know, uh, I'm American Airlines in Chicago and I fly to New York, LaGuardia, you know, probably a dozen times a day or, or, or close to it. But I fly to Tokyo in the winter, I think three times a week, I'm more likely to cancel a LaGuardia flight than a Tokyo flight, not only because the Tokyo flight is more people on it generally, but but uh, but also because the, the, the Tokyo bound passengers might be stuck for days. Do or Am I right about those two things? You're absolutely right about both things. And those are very specific results when you're trying to minimize the total disruption that happens. That's right. You'll go for fewer people or um, more expensive reaccommodation or things like that. 
earlier in the in this episode, Seth, we talked about politics affecting airlines. Politics affects this too, because when there are big weather events, a big snowstorm coming to Chicago, for example, <laughs> um, airlines that proactively thin out the schedule by pre-canceling, they sort of win brownie points with air traffic control and with the local airport operators. And when they need help later on in some sort of operation, I need to get this plane out and it's really jammed or yeah. I need to get this extra gate, the the powers that be at the airport or maybe with the FAA are more likely to want to sort of work collaboratively with airlines that help them. It's a you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours issue. That's and airlines that make yeah. the FAA air traffic control system work better when things go bad are sort of given, you know, little belt latches to say, you know, they're good players in the space. And airlines think about that when that's, they decide how proactively yeah. to do things. Yeah, it's not just an, at a very high level macro national politics that airlines that are perceived as being good to customers get, you know, big political wins. Even at that granular level, the the controllers remember the airline that uh, that that worked with them. Uh, well, do you have a question for us? You can do what James did. Call us at 305-379-7429 and record a question for us anytime during the week. That's 305-379-7429. You can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com, questions, plural, at airlinespluralconfidential.com, airlinesconfidential is all one word. Uh, or you could do what Andrew did earlier in the show. Uh, he jumped on the airlinesconfidential.com website. You'll see a forum on there to submit your question. Well, beginning our initial descent now on today's show, it's time for fine or whine. We listen to an actual customer complaint, and then we talk about whether a complaint is fine or if they're just whining. And Ben, you have a complaint. I do have one, and I bet this is one that other people have felt at times in their flying life. This one is from Sandy of Montague, California. Sandy says, I was preparing to book a United Airlines flight when I saw the credit card benefits program. So I applied for the card to receive the benefits that went with the credit card. After being approved for the card, I booked my flight using the new card, and the benefits didn't work. My receipt showed that United was showing that I would be charged baggage fees, and this is not supposed to happen if you use their credit card. I called three times, once was told it was Chase Bank's fault, and I was transferred to Chase Bank, who indicated they did nothing wrong and it was a United issue. I also used United's portal twice, but haven't heard back about my complaint. How can they promise benefits and not deliver? Is that legal? The supervisor I spoke with actually hung up on me instead of helping resolve the $120 issue. You would think their customers matter a little bit more than that. So, Ben, fine or wine? Is, 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 is Sandy right? Or does Sandy? I'm actually not sure whether it's whether it's he or she. I just see Sandy as Sandy. Why? Uh, but but is this? Did Sandy just have to be patient, and wait for everything to go through? I think Sandy is the winner of this one. Yeah. I understand why I think this happened, though. My guess is it's a timing issue. The the credit cards and the banks work together on things like this. And my guess is that the credit card company in the way they tell United system that these customers have this benefit from this card, that that, that communication hadn't happened because yeah. she had gotten the card too close to when she booked the tickets. That's not her fault. That's United and the bank's fault. So I'm not blaming her for that, but I'm saying I understand why something like this would have happened. My guess is if she had waited a while and then booked a ticket, 
they would have recognized her as a credit card customer, not charged her those bag fees. But the fact is she got the card. She had the card available and the bank recognized that card because they let her charge a ticket on it. Right. So the bank should have told United and United should have given her the free bags if that was a benefit under that card. Sandy's absolutely right about this. United shouldn't have hung up on her. Chase shouldn't have just punted it back to United either. I think think the people involved here, the bank and the airline, needed to own up to this and say, look, we didn't have you down as a credit card customer. We charge you for the bags. Here's your $120 back. Thanks for flying us. Next time you'll be in our system and we won't even have to go through this. I've noticed, for example, once in a while when I book a Hertz rental car, I'm a Hertz Gold customer, as a lot of people are. And once in a while, I ch- I don't see my name on the board. And then they say, you know, we didn't see your Hertz number in the record, even though I knew I put it in. And so these things kind of happen sometimes, but the company should take care of it. Sandy is absolutely right on this one. Go, Sandy, yeah. get your $120 back. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the airlines, I mean, they have a lot to lose if people d- – d- don't want to have these cards because these cards are worth billions of dollars uh, to, to these airlines. Uh, ben, you were mentioning to me earlier, American uh, said $3 billion a year from their relationship with Citibank. I know Delta said not long ago that their American Express relationship is going to be worth $7 billion to them within a few years, $7 billion a year. That's more money than Delta's entire annual profit. And Delta is a very profitable airline. So, I mean, there are airlines that would be losing money if, if not for these cards. So, you know, they they don't want this kind of stuff happening. I, I will say this, um, you know, piece of advice if you're ever in this situation, generally the, the ticket counter agents or you know, the people who handle the bag drop and all that have pretty wide latitude with this. If you just show up at the airport and show them that you have the card, they will typically let you check the card and they, they're not going to, they're not going to charge check the bags rather not kind of charge you for it. I, I've been in this situation in the same a few times, not exactly the same one that Sandy faced, but for example, uh, it, you know, it's supposed to be everybody who you're traveling with. It's not even, it's a fairly liberal benefit. They don't even say on the same record necessarily. So like I've been on a different record from my wife because I, you know, redeemed frequent flyer miles for one ticket and paid for the other, that kind of thing. And you know, we're, we were checking two bags and got to the counter. Uh, I think this happened to be both on Delta and American. I have credit cards with both of them, actually, where we said, okay, can she, you know, even though I'm the one with, with the right credit card or whatever, can she check her bag for free? And they said, oh, yeah, absolutely. So, so uh, typically, if you talk to the people at the counter, they'll help you. I probably would have with Sandy is, is that she, again, we're guessing is she here. Um, uh, was checking out online and and paid to to check the bag ahead of time and then had a hard time getting the refund. Regardless, it's look, this is as you said, the airline's problem and and, and uh, the bank's problem. Sandy shouldn't have gone through that. But anyway, that's just a tip. If if the airline's ever asking you to pay uh, online ahead of time for something, you shouldn't just show up at the counter and 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 typically they will there help to resolve the problem. That's well, a good, that's yeah. a really good tip, Seth. And as a reminder, airlines make a lot of money from their credit card relationship with the banks, which is why they're always pushing you to get the card if you don't yeah. have it. Right? Why yeah. the flight attendants will say, sign up here, or you see tables in the airports, get our credit card. And they can afford to give the bags free to the credit card customers because they make so much money. You're, because of the $7 billion. Because of, the seven, because <laughs> of all the money the bank bags and, Yeah, and it, it, basically it's $7 billion 
$10, like two cents at a time when you, I mean, the way it works and, and, uh, I know we're running out of time here, but, uh, you know, you buy something, whatever it is, you get the miles and what it is, it's really the, the bank buying those miles from the airline to award from you. You know, you buy that, that, that drink for $4 and you get uh, four miles for doing that. You know, in that case, the, the credit card company has basically paid, you know, something like one or two cents a mile to the airline to then give those miles to you. And it, it all adds up to all those billions of dollars. Well, uh, on final approach now, that does it for Airlines Confidential this week. Please fasten your seatbelt and ensure your seat backs and tray tables are in their upright and locked positions. And remember, we'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429 or email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. From the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Seth Kaplan. And I'm Ben Baldanza. We'll talk to you soon. Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. Massmedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com.